Good morning, witches. This is the Witch Daily Show, coming to you from New Orleans, with host Tanya Brown. Our episodes span about 20 minutes long to give you just a little pop of magic. So, tune in, take a deep breath, and enjoy. Good morning. It is Friday, November 3rd, 2023. I am Tanya, and this is the Witch Daily Show. So let's get your day going with a little magic. Our quote of the day is, nothing in life is to be feared. It is only to be understood. Now is the time to understand more so that we can fear less. By Marie Curie. So we are uh, skipping tea because, honestly, I had such a jam-packed weekend that I'm just a little burnt out. <laughs> and the idea of digging out a tea, I'm just, ah, uh, let me tell you, I have been so sleepy. Maybe it's the weather changing, but I swear, I have been falling asleep at like 8 p.m. every day and waking up at like 6. Like, I do not know what's up, but I am sleepy. But I will say I had an absolutely wonderful weekend. I got to go to the Anne Rice Ball and um, do all of these wonderful things. My book signing was postponed uh, for a bunch of reasons I cannot get into, but um, I'm excited to be here with you. So um, for some headlines, this is from Forbes and they published it at the end of September. How to tell if your hotel is haunted, according to paranormal experts. So spooky season is upon us and leave it to historic hotels to check some of the very best ghost stories about guests who never checked out. In fact, Historic Hotels of America keeps a running list of its 25 most haunted hotels and many hotels market their ghosts with tours and merchandise, helping drum up the revenue to cover historic preservation costs. Take Hotel de Take Hotel del Coronado in Coronado, California, where the property's historian leads a haunted happenings tour, relaying the tale of Kate Morgan's 1892 visit and the mystery surrounding her death. At the Stanley Hotel in Esses Park, Colorado, a historic property that's garnered a reputation for being Disney for ghosts and is also the hotel that inspired The Shining, guests have snapped photos of a staircase and later noticed apparitions in their shots. So if you're among the 46% of Americans that believe in ghosts, how do you know if your hotel room is actually haunted or the property just needs some electrical upgrades? Well, for believers, hotels are well known for haunts, which can be attributed to how many people walk through the doors and spend their time at the properties. Residual energies can linger from guests. Uh, Leslie says, who is the co-founder of the Haunt Ghost Tours. Plus, many hotels are old buildings constructed of wood and organic materials, which can conduct and contain energy. And add to the fact that tragedies and important moments take place inside hotels, you have the perfect storm for paranormal activity. 
On the positive side, spirits may simply love the place. Perhaps it's haunted by someone who loved the grandeur of hotels and spent time hobnobbing there and remains comfortable in the space. So, here are the five signs to know if your hotel is haunted. So, I do a garden district tour sometimes, and many of the places that we stop are places that were like inns uh, and like boarding houses and boutique hotels. So I'm curious to see if these five things add up to the uh, things that happen within the hotels. All right, number one, objects move without assistance. Objects moving or music playing is one of the biggest signs of a haunt that paranormal experts pinpoint. And I can say that happens in all of the houses I've talked about. Electronics turn on and off. While this can happen from short circuits or power outages, many hotels have generators preventing this. Ooh. I can't think of any from my tours. Three, you smell cigarette smoke or perfume. Another sign your hotel is haunted is smelling cigarette smoke, cigar smoke, or perfume in your room, seemingly out of nowhere with no explanation as to why. Um, on one of the stops, uh, it said to smell of lemon. Four, you feel cold spots. Unexplained cold spots are also a common sign ghosts are present. And five, you're moody. <laughs> Lastly, you should pay special attention to drastic changes in your personal mood when staying in a suspected haunted hotel. Interesting. All right, witches. I'm going to throw this over to our moon correspondent. And after this break, we will talk more. Hello to all of my astro friends. This is Serendipity, the Chicago astrologer, coming at you with your daily moon mantra for Friday, November 3rd. The waning gibbous moon continues to have all the feels in Cancer today. Here, the moon forms a grand water trine to Mercury and Neptune. In a grand water trine, emotions, intuition, and gut feelings are highlighted. Our internal sensors are on high with these energies, and we're feeling all of the vibrations good, bad, and everything in between. This is a perfect day to tap into your psychic abilities or set some intentions. The universe is flowing with you and through you, and you will feel that in a much more intimate way today. Really listen to what your instincts are telling you. With these vibes about, they will be more accurate than ever. Your daily moon mantra is, intuition is seeing with the soul. This has been your Daily Moon Mantra with Serendipity, the Chicago astrologer, signing off and reminding you that you are in charge of your own destiny. Hi, witches. It's me. Um, I did want to share that every uh, December and January, I do 12-month yearly readings. Uh, basically, it is a reading that I do over audio that I email to you, and I go over what your year is going to look like. I give you ideas for what to write down in your planner, how to make hard times a little softer, what I think you can avoid, and what I think you're just going to have to muscle through. Um, and I share good things, 
um, and as well as which months you can prep for harder months or ways you can celebrate things. And I absolutely love these readings. I have people who get this, who get the readings every year and nothing makes me happier when I get like an email in August that was like, oh my gosh, your reading was spot on all year and it just makes my day. So I only offered these in December and January. So if you want to check that out, go to a schedule. Nope. Go to, uh, tanyabrown.schedulista.com or go to witchpod.com if you want to schedule that. Uh, I stop offering them after January. All right, we are back. So today is Friday, which is traditionally our encyclopedia day where we learn something new. And I found something a little different that I thought was really interesting. It comes from the arts and cultures section of Google. And essentially, uh, Julian Harrison, the curator at the British Library, was doing research for like magic and pop culture. So think things like Harry Potter and stuff and was looking through old archives and found just 10 really strange, uh, strange mentions of magic in her work in these um these archival books and such. So I thought it'd be super fun fun to go through them. So it's 10 strange things you didn't know about the history of magic. And again, this is from the curator at the British Library while she was doing research. Number one, apparently making yourself invisible is easy, provided you know the right words. So forget the fact you don't have an uh, an invisibility cloak to hand. According to one 17th century manuscript known as the Book of King Solomon called The Key of Knowledge, you could make yourself invisible simply by reciting a string of words. These instructions are found in a chapter headed, How Experiments to Be Invisible Must Be Prepared. The writer and scholar Gabriel Harvey owned this manuscript and one account of his life states he largely disappeared from view in the final decades of his life. Maybe the charm worked. And I'm not going to read the words uh, because, one, I'm not going to say any of it correct. And I'm just not in a place to take that criticism. Just know it's a lot of oldie looking words. I mean, I, it actually kind of looks like old English, if we're being honest. Like old, 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 old English. Two, a phoenix takes nine days to rise from the ashes. So phoenixes are one of the most famous mythological birds and um, often characters in a lot of books. Their behavior and life cycle was often described in medieval beastries, uh, encyclopedias about animals real and imagined. In one tradition, it is said that the phoenix was native to Arabia and lived for 500 years. And in its old age, it would create its own funeral pyre from branches and plants. It would then fan the flames with its own wings. And in order to be consumed by the fire before rising again, the ashes would have to sit for nine days. This legendary ability has often been compared to the resurrection of Christ. Three, moles on the buttocks are especially auspicious. 
The old Egyptian fortune teller's last legacy, published in London in 1775, contains lots of dubious advice on how to predict your future. We're used to tea leaves and cups, but one other way to tell the future was by interpreting the moles on your face and body. For example, did you know that a mole on the buttock denoted honor to a man and riches to a woman? On another page, the significance of lines and other marks on the hands, we received the news that certain lines denote a trustworthy and faithful person. While others indicate, let the party take care to avoid deep water. So it sounds like kind of uh, uh, vintage palm reading. Number four, Nicholas Culpepper was a witch. Nicholas Culpepper's Herbal, first published in 1652, is one of the most influential books to identify the medicinal uses of different plants. But Culpepper was frowned upon by the medical establishment. He was an unlicensed apothecary and came into frequent conflict with the College of Physicians, not least because he wrote in English rather than Latin. In 1642, Culpepper was apparently tried and acquitted for practicing witchcraft, the penalty for which was death. Today, we would describe him as a hedge witch, a wise man or woman adept in providing re uh, remedies for illnesses and ailments. Yeah, Nicholas Culpepper is probably one of the most influential like herbalists ever. Five, need to harvest mandrake, then find yourself a dog. A lesson in herbology. In the Middle Ages, it was believed that mandrakes could cure headaches, earache, and gout. At the same time, it was supposed to be very far, uh, hazardous to harvest because its roots resembled the human form. When pulled from the ground, its shrieks could cause madness. This is why medieval plant collectors devised an elaborate method to harvest mandrakes. The best way to obtain one safely was to unearth its roots with an ivory stake, attaching the plant to a dog with a cord. A horn should then be sounded, drowning out the shrieking, while at the same time startling the dog, causing it to drag out the mandrake. Another piece of advice was to stuff your ears with clods of earth before attempting to pull the mandrake from the ground. Number six. Some of the best bizarre stones are found in the stomach of goats. So what is this? So uh, these stones were introduced into medieval Europe by uh, Arabic physicians. Wealthy collectors were willing to spend considerable sums to acquire the best stones. And in A Complete History of Drugs, published in France in 1694, it was reported that the medicinal strength of a bazaar stone depended on the animal that produced it. For instance, those found in the guts of cows were nowhere near as good as those which came from the bazaar goat. One of our colleagues recently acquired a bazaar stone from a llama sourced from Bolivia. Oof, oof, that sounds uh, like a lot. Seven, this early uh, alchemical illustration is in fact a, rec a record of ancient Egyptian monuments. In the Book of Seven Climes, written in 13th century, it was supposed to be a book that focused on alchemy illustrations. 
And it uh, apparently there was a picture that was supposedly taken from a hidden book attributed to Hermes. Oh, attributed to the golden. T- it's the golden. Not the golden, the emerald tablet. So they believe that this book, the Book of Seven Climbs from the 13th century, actually had an illustration from the golden, not the golden, the emerald tablet. Wow. He believed it had uh, the secrets of alchemy, and it was recorded in uh, hieroglyphics on the walls of tombs. Wow. Man, if you ever want to, like, get into a subject, um, the emerald tablet is definitely something you could really dig into for like the rest of your life. A unicorn can have two horns. In recent years, unicorns have appeared in uh, our hair, on our toast, and on our clothes, but our fascination for the horned horse goes back centuries. In 1694, Pierre Pomet, a French pharmacist, published the history, uh, the general history of... I guess unicorns. And one of the illustrations shows five different species of unicorns. One with two horns. Uh, it. He also notes that the unicorn horn was well used on account of great properties attributed to it, uh, principally against po- uh, poisons. Nine, the oldest datable object at the British Library was pinpointed with the aid of NASA. The British Library's collections number in the range of 200 million books, manuscripts, newspapers, and more. The oldest, to be precisely datable, is a Chinese oracle bone. On one side, it records a prediction made at the court of the ruler, while on the reverse is a written account of a lunar eclipse. The eclipse is described in such detail that with the assistance of NASA, it can be determined that it was observed in China on December 27th, 1192. Oh my gosh, that's neat. And number 10, always carry a weasel in your pocket. You never know when you're going to encounter a... uh, Basilic, which can kill you with a fatal stare. So, uh, this was advice given by Pliny the Elder in AD 79, the Roman natural historian. According to Pliny, I don't know if that's how you say Pliny, Pliny, if a weasel was dropped into a basilic's burrow, the creature would be succumb with its odor. Somewhat sadly for the weasel, it would also die in an ensuing struggle. Wow, this is really neat. Let me tell you, old books are so interesting. It's really hard not to get completely engulfed in the idea of things all of these old books say. Ah. All right, witches, I hope that was fun. Um, We are wrapping up this episode of the Witch Daily Show. I want to give a shout out to listener Lilith. Lilith! You rule-breaking, bombastic vampire slayer. Don Howard, you scrumptious, beautiful sunset. And Lori Sanderson, you talented, mystical mongoose. Thank you three so much for being Patreon supporters. I really appreciate you. Um, Let's see. Our card today is... 
this scythe from the Lenormand deck next to me. <laughs> so what is the scythe in Lenormand? I know we're taking a quick break from our uh, deck at the moment, but the scythe is all about cutting things out of your life so that you can grow new and better things. It's the idea that some things need to be cut to end in order for you to prosper and for either new things to grow or for you to harvest the things you've worked for. All right. So the scythe. What needs to be cut away? Now is a great time to think about that, especially as we near the end of the year. All right, witches, don't forget any books, decks, headlines, sources, anything we reference today can be found in the podcast episode description or witchpod.com. And we will talk again tomorrow. Bye. Witches, we hope you have a wonderful day full of joy and gentleness and confidence. Links for this week's episodes, our website, Patreon, along with a free daily card pull can be found at witchpod.com. One stop for everything we talk about. Now, take one more deep breath and have a great day. <laughs>